Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Still no action on Hamilton's cyber attack. Also on the docket today, the housing crisis, downtown safety, measles makes a comeback, happy leap day, and weird town names. Enjoy the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk cyber attack because there is still five days into this thing, still no word on what hackers were targeting or how deep they got when they breached the city of Hamilton's IT systems or even when city services are going to be back up and running again. Now, in some cases, we've had to go to some manual operations, but we found mechanisms to ensure that people get paid on time um, and that that's happening both for staff and in the community. City Manager Marnie Clucky, who joined us on Good Morning Hamilton yesterday, everything from the HSR to the library being impacted, no city meetings yesterday. Ugh. Charles Finley is the founding executive director at Rogers Cybersecurity Catalyst at Toronto Metropolitan University and joins us on GMH. Charles, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good to be with you. As I mentioned, this is day five now dealing with the aftermath or the aftershock of this cyber attack. Does it normally take this long to untangle what hackers have done? Yes, unfortunately, uh, it often does. And you know, I would urge patience. It could take uh, considerably longer. If, as we've seen in other uh, situations, you know, in particular circumstances like the Toronto Public Library attack, uh, it can take weeks or even months to uh, fully understand uh, the scope of the attack and to get systems back online. So uh, the unfortunate reality is, yes, it does uh, and can take a while. So what is being done? How are IT professionals or investigators dissecting this? What are they doing? Well, uh, the first point to make is they're probably working uh, around the clock. Uh, They're working uh, to understand uh, the scope of the attack, all the systems uh, that have been impacted. Uh, They're working to understand uh, how the attack uh, took place. Uh, they're working to understand the scope of, of damage that may have been done to systems, the data that may have been exposed or exfiltrated uh, from the systems. And of course, they're working to uh, you know, try to get these systems back online uh, as quickly as possible. So I think it's fair to say that there is a, you know, a flurry of activity and a lot of coffee being drunk uh, uh, in that group right now. Hackers uh, slither their way in. Do they try to cover their tracks on the way out somehow or or at some point in time? Yeah, we don't know much uh, about uh, exactly uh, how this attack happened, the kind of attack uh, that it is, or, you know, certainly we don't have any information at this point. I don't think about uh, what groups uh, may be responsible uh, for this attack. But listen, uh, cyber attacks are becoming uh, increasingly uh, sophisticated. Uh, they are growing in uh, in number, uh, especially attacks on municipalities and critical infrastructure uh, across Canada. So, you know, the situation is becoming more and more serious. And certainly Hamilton uh, is not alone at all in terms of being a municipality that's been targeted by a recent cyber attack. You're 100% right. Nova Scotia had like 100,000 uh, individuals where they had their personal information stolen. Teachers and students, healthcare workers were, were impacted. Even 41 newborns in Nova Scotia had their data breached with that attack. You mentioned the Toronto Public Library uh, throwing the LCBO last year, personal information stolen there as well. 
You said we don't know how this happened, and that certainly is the, the correct answer. We don't know. But odds are, Charles, that this was probably human error, right? Like someone in the city must have goofed, lack of training, dumb decision. That's got, that's got to get the blame. Well, we don't know. I think at this point, I, I think, um, you know, we should reserve judgment on exactly how this, uh, how this attack uh, happened. Uh, certainly, if we're speaking about ransomware attacks, and again, I, we don't have information yet on whether or not this is a ransomware attack, although uh, ransomware attacks have been launched against other uh, municipalities in recent times. So that's, you know, one obvious uh, situation. Uh, it is correct to say that, you know, ransomware attacks uh, can begin uh, through, you know, clicking on a link uh, in an email uh, that looks to any employee like it came from their colleague or uh, their boss, uh, but that uh, then exposes that network uh, to uh, a cyber attack. Awareness uh, amongst employees uh, is, you know, incredibly important for all organizations, uh, public sector and private sector. So uh, it's it's important that you know proper training is done, and it's important that. You know, we all work together to to uh, you know address this this critical issue. Uh, too early to say, I think, at this point, exactly how this attack started. That's fair. Charles Finley is the founding executive director of the Rogers Cyber Secure Catalyst at Toronto Metropolitan University, and is our guest this morning on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Now, the city of Hamilton uh, and the city manager would not confirm on air with us yesterday if sensitive data was breached, and I get it, it's too early to tell. But is that likely what happened? I mean, what what else are hackers going after? Yeah, there's a few different uh, objectives that hackers can have. The first, obviously, is money. I mean, a ransomware attack is, uh, you know, is an extortion of money uh, from uh, an organization. So uh, there's there's that objective. The second objective can be uh, uh, data, uh, intellectual property. Uh, other uh, valuable um, uh, information uh, that is of use uh, to the attacker. And the third uh, is the disruption of, you know, our our society and our economy. So if this is a ransomware attack, uh, you know, we can expect that the objectives involve extorting uh, money uh, from the city, again, if this is a ransomware attack. And, and uh, you know, a second parallel objective could be uh, the exfiltration of of data or other information that can be of use uh, uh, to the attacker. So lots of different potential motives uh, at play here. Certainly worrisome, that is for sure. Anyone who lives in this city is kind of wondering, is, is my data safe? What have the hackers breached? What do they have now? Is my identity going to be stolen? Uh, a lot of concerns, a lot of questions, and not many answers at this point. Charles, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciative of your time this morning. Happy to help. Charles Finley, founding executive director of Rogers Cybersecure Catalyst at Toronto Metropolitan University. To that end, at 820 this morning, we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive, if you will, into this cyber attack with the city of Hamilton, including what happens if your information was breached? What do you have to do? Our good friend Carmi Levy is going to join us at 820 to discuss that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The vote on the Stony Creek parking versus housing issue was supposed to be at city council yesterday, but it was postponed thanks to this ongoing cybersecurity issue that the city's dealing with. Given the extraordinary circumstances 
and capacity issues that are related to the cybersecurity incident. Uh, I'm going to ask Councillor McMeekin for a motion uh, to postpone the remainder of the uh, council agenda to a future meeting. And that's exactly what has happened. But this issue in Stony Creek isn't the only one, isn't the only housing project that remains stalled at Hamilton City Council. And we'll get into that with Sarah Mayo, the social planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton. Sarah, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good, thank you. I want to start with local encampments because the the weather has certainly changed. The last 24 hours must have been very difficult for those who are living in tents. Absolutely. Um, I know last time uh, we talked, uh, we talked about the, the um, about the number of uh, in, people in encampments, and and winter certainly does reduce the number, but there was still um, about um, uh, close to a hundred people who were. Um, who are living in tents by the city's latest count. And uh, the weather um, uh, it makes it very difficult. I mean, we, we know uh, in other cities, people um, have, have passed away because of the weather um, this winter. Um, and, um, and so certainly we, they, it underlines the, the crisis when we see encampments every day in our city. Yesterday, we spoke with a poverty advocate by the name of uh, Angela Voss, who is camping out at City Hall in protest of some of the housing projects that remain stuck. Here's just something or one thing that she had to say yesterday. Every time that there's a project, the city of Hamilton denies it. And I think that we really need to work together and annihilate this problem because people are suffering out here. It's got to be frustrating, Sarah, to hear... The city council, for one reason or another, has stalled on a number of housing projects. We have the Stony Creek parking versus housing debate, uh, Darko Vranich's proposal downtown, you know, turning vacant schools into housing. We have the derelict homes on James North that should be a livable space for people again. You know, city housing Hamilton not fixing up their homes fast enough. That's a cavalcade of stuff that could that could be meaningful for so many people. Absolutely. Um, and I will add uh, an, an, another person, another body that, that, that makes it difficult has been uh, CN because uh, it's, it's the, the, the housing on James North is derelict because of the appeal uh, about um, how the sound will reverberate on, on larger buildings there. So mm-hmm. it's, um, it's really disappointing that they um, have done that appeal and, and how long that, that is taking because that absolutely um needs to be um you know that's in, in in some ways people see it as um you know symbolic not just the actual housing there but it 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 just seems because that one has taken so long it really sticks in people's memory um so hopefully that appeal uh will will be done at some point soon and 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 it can move forward yeah that area of the city is a huge opportunity because the the guts are there like the buildings are there they just got to be spruced up obviously and to that end we well, also- that, that one it, it more than that, because that that is such a big parcel. There could be so much more housing than the Absolutely. houses that are on there now, and it's going to be a, 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 a taller building with a lot more units. How do we make some real change in this city with our housing stock and get those people out of tents, get them out of RVs, get them out of our parks and into housing? Well, we build more housing. I mean, our research has shown even before the pandemic that there was twice as many new households as new housing in Hamilton. Like there has not been enough housing uh, of all forms and then especially not enough rental housing 
especially in not enough affordable rental housing. Um, and, and specifically, if we go to Stony Creek, Stony Creek, there was a 30% increase in the number of renter households between the last two censuses, 2016 and 20, um, and 2021. And um, that was higher than the average of 11% increase across the city. So, so Stony Creek is, is one of the areas that needs more rental housing. Um, and, and, and this is the, the, the type of housing everybody says that we should build more of, affordable rental housing. I, know, I understand the concern from some business owners, some residents who use the businesses who, who have these city-owned parking lots in Stony Creek. And I know there's other areas we should be building, and that's all fine and well. But to not build these two housing projects on these parking lots because people want to be able to park there, there's other parking lots around that area of the city, it just seems like a bonkers thing to me. Well, I, I, I don't think we, it's, it's as simple as, oh, it's just, you know, it has to be done and, and it doesn't matter about the parking. I think that, 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 that there has to be some, it, these decisions are difficult and there are um, trade-offs. There's no perfect solution and there's, um, there's always going to be um, uh, changes that happen in our city and, and it's going to mean loss of parking is kind of the number one thing that happens in cities as cities develop and, and people, um, it, it is sometimes it means someone, uh, 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 may have to, um, walk a bit further. Like one of the uses of parking that in other studies that have shown is that a lot of parking gets used by the workers at, at businesses, not by the customers as much. And, um, and so, like you say, there's other parking lots, there's a lot of, um, apartment buildings in that area. Could there be a creative solution where the daytime um, workers can use the parking of the buildings that are nearby, um, things like that. So staff, instead of um, council saying, we're not going to do this, they could have, and hopefully maybe at this council will say, uh, at the next council where it gets decided, say, okay, staff, can you come back with um, uh, a report specifically about the parking and how it's going to um, be managed once these lots are not available. Certainly, it's come up the Santa Claus Parade. Well, the Stony Creek Rec Center is not too far away. Could that be used instead? Mm-hmm. There's there's ways that, that these things can be managed. And it reminds me a lot of, um, I'm sure you remember, John Street and James Street going two-way many yep. years ago, close to 20 years ago now. Um, they, uh, there was a lot of parking that was lost and there was a lot of consternation about that and, and how were businesses going to survive? Um, and now we would never think of, of, of adding more parking, um, and taking away the, the, the two way nature of those streets. And so it's, it's difficult to conceive of, but once it happens, um, people adjust and and these buildings are going to bring new customers as well. Absolutely. So um, and, and new homeowners and a greater tax base. There's a lot of pluses that go with it. Uh, Sarah, we'll have to leave it there. I'm sure there's some common ground that city council and the community is going to come to. It's just, it's just going to take some time, I guess. Appreciate your time this morning. Enjoy the day. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Wasn't that long ago when a lot of people were complaining, wow, the police budget is just too high. What do we need all these officers for? 
Well, there are now calls for the Hamilton Police Corps Patrol in downtown Hamilton to expand. Policing should not always be in a reactive mode. We have to have an ability to be proactive and be able to work with our businesses, the BIAs and our residents of our community to make sure everybody feels safe. That is Hamilton Police Chief Frank Bergen on this show, May 24th, 2023, talking about the core patrol. Troy Thompson is the owner of GW Thompson Jeweler and Pawnbroker and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Troy, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. We're doing well. You were also on that show in studio with us talking about the need to implement a dedicated patrol of officers downtown to keep the peace, to make sure people aren't stealing from stores or uh, putting graffiti all over the place. How has it gone? Uh, definitely a positive. Uh, having uh, the presence on the uh, street is uh, it's it's encouraging. Uh, one thing that we uh, we do ask for is is more police. Uh, they gave us two officers, and uh, we don't have to tell you. Just having two people on the streets uh, is going to be very limited in what they're able to do. Because of the cybersecurity crisis at the city, the police services board meeting today is going to be held, although at a different location. But the call is to expand this, as you just mentioned. How much bigger do you hope this thing gets? You know what? Just keep going in the right direction and and, and uh, bring the, the the presence of the police back on the street is uh, all I'm asking for. Have you noticed an increase in theft after your store uh, or or other stores in the neighborhood? What are what are business owners talking about down there when the core patrol is not in action? Because this is just Monday to Friday, nine to five. You know, it, it's a struggle all the time. You you have to protect what you what you've worked hard for. Uh, having uh, the dedicated uh, core patrol, uh, one thing that I see as a positive is uh, having a, a common uh, source to go to, uh, rather than having to repeat to a new officer every time you, you need to make a call. Uh, the, the core patrol is, is a great uh, uh, avenue to go to on a regular basis. Has the mood changed downtown? Like, I know there's there's people in this city, and I've talked to many of them, who are afraid to shop downtown for a variety of reasons, including one being, you know, the the security or the safety aspect. You know, it, it's there's lots of activity on the street, uh, and and just dealing with the police presence, uh, uh, people continue to come into the store, and, and having the police on the street, uh, it just makes it a little more comforting. Troy Thompson is the owner of G.W. Thompson Jeweler and Pawn Broker. We're talking about a call that will be made uh, later on today at the Police Services Board meeting to increase the core patrol in downtown Hamilton. Right now, there's a couple of officers who park their vehicle, walk about, make sure that everyone is A-OK. And if there is an issue, they will tackle it, uh, either literally or, uh, you know, theoretically. What did you do before the core patrol was created? Was, was it chaos? Was it concerning going to work? Not chaos. Uh, just we, we, you know, you you didn't have that uh, that first line to to continually go to on a regular basis. Uh, as I, as I mentioned earlier, when you had to make a call, you you were repeating yourself in, in trying to express your struggles. Uh, when you have a, a core patrol, they understand that they know that you've called multiple times or one time, and and they they understand your 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 personal uh, concern. What is your message to shoppers who are legitimately afraid to go downtown to shop? You know, the, the business hours, it's fine. You know, you, you come down, there is lots of activity on the street, uh, lots of foot traffic. Uh, and 
it, it, the having the pleasant presence of the police is 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 a reason why that uh, is is there. Well, we'll find out later on today whether that is going to be expanded or not. Troy, thank you so much for your time this morning. Enjoy the day. Thanks, Rick. You too. Troy Thompson is the owner of GW Thompson Jeweler and Pawnbroker. So later on this afternoon, 1 p.m., in fact, Police Services Board hearing will talk about this and many other issues in regards to potentially expanding this core patrol in the downtown. Uh, whether it happens or not, you'll hear about it in CHML News coming up later on today. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Peter, what are you doing all from school? They sent me home. Measles. Are you sure it's the measles? Well, he certainly got all the symptoms. A slight temperature, a lot of dots, and a great big smile. A great big smile? No school for a few days. We have a confirmed case of measles in our area. A child from the Branford area contracted after recently traveling to Europe. And people who were on the same flight, this Lufthansa flight, uh, from London to Pearson Airport last Friday, are now being contacted. And the child was also at Branford's ER last Friday night, and this is the third confirmed travel-related case of measles this month in southern Ontario. So we now have a heightened awareness. Where do we go from here? Dr. Brendan Liu is an Associate Medical Officer of Health with the City of Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. Liu, good morning. How are you? Uh, good. Thank you so much for having me. Hamilton Public Health um, issued an advisory yesterday. It's tied to Mac Kids Hospital. What can you tell us? So uh, what we're aware of is that Hamilton Public Health Services has been following up on the exposure uh, within McMaster Children's Hospital Emergency Department from a confirmed case of measles from another jurisdiction that was confirmed to be uh, travel-related. And so we've been in touch with the identified contacts from that exposure at McMaster to give them appropriate direction on uh, what measures to take and what to look out for in terms of symptoms of measles. So does that mean that child from the Brantford area was at MacKids or, or someone close to the child? So the the confirmed case of measles was at the uh, McMaster Children's Hospital and uh, we uh, with Hamilton Public Health Services have been working closely with McMaster Children's Hospital to identify those that would have been exposed and uh, connecting with those individuals. If they if someone was at the hospital uh, while this child was and I think the date is February 24th what should they be doing? So we have been connecting directly with those people that would have been exposed and giving them specific direction uh, depending on uh, the type of exposure they may have had around what measures to take. What measures everybody should be taking is really just making sure that you're aware of what your vaccination history is and whether you've been received the appropriate vaccinations for measles, mumps and rubella. And if you've missed any of those vaccines to make sure that you take the opportunity to get up to date. Most people would have gotten their shots when they were kids and they may not remember way back when whether or not they got it. Is there a way to check? So absolutely. The Getting in touch with your doctor and looking at any vaccination records that you might have available is is the best way to check and make sure. Uh, and that um, that would be the best way to try to find if you have been vaccinated. We, we do tend to see that people who were born before the year 1970 um, may have had measles as a child and, and those people might be considered to be uh, immune. But we've had this vaccination uh, uh, in Ontario for over 50 years at this point. And, and so it is a, a very 
safe and effective vaccine that that prevents measles. And so most people would have received that vaccine uh, as as a child. What we've seen, though, is through COVID-19 that many people have missed uh, vaccines or are behind or delayed. And so especially for children, it's really important to look at those records, see what's been received, if anything's been missed and connect with your doctor to ensure that you're up to date on 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 particularly that measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine. It's at times like this or incidents like this that I'm glad that I got my kids uh, the, the vaccination. I'm glad that I got the measles shot, you know, years and years and years ago. How big of a concern is measles these days? So measles is a serious preventable disease that is called caused by a respiratory virus. It can cause serious respiratory complications such as pneumonia. It can cause serious neurologic uh, complications, including damage to the brain. And particularly for people who are higher risk, including uh, children, people who are older, people who are uh, pregnant or immunocompromised, they are especially higher risk of requiring hospitalization and and certainly measles can be fatal as well. So it is a very serious disease, but it is also very preventable by a uh, very effective vaccine. This We're seeing a rise in measles in many places in the world, um, likely due to, unfortunately, lower rates of vaccination coverage for measles and uh, an increase in the number of cases, particularly that are related to, to travel uh, in Ontario so far this year. And so it is definitely a very present concern, especially in the uh, context of people who might be behind on their vaccines from COVID-19. And so it really is quite important to check that records, make sure that you're up to date, connect with your doctor, and uh, to receive any of those vaccines that might be missing. Dr. Lou, appreciate the information this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me. That is Dr. Brendan Liu, Associate Medical Officer of Health with the City of Hamilton. Certainly the anti-vax movement has made an impact when it comes to measles. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The question is on this February 29th, which comes about, as you know, every four years. Are we working for free today? Well, it kind of depends on your work situation. Let's bring in our expert, Lior Samfiro, employment lawyer, Samfiro Tamarkin, LLP, and also part of the Employment Law Show, which you can hear Saturdays and Sundays at noon right here on 900 CHML. Lior, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Uh, Great to be with you. This is the first leap year day post-pandemic, and... You know, as, as we know, many people are still working from home, either fully remote or in hybrid mode. Is today any different than in past years when it comes to employment? Well, you know, what's, what's different is I've been practicing law 21 years. So I've gone through uh, about five or four of these uh, leap years. And this is the first year where I'm asked this question often, you know, what happens with this leap year? Am I going to get it paid extra? And in the past, I've never had this issue come up as a question. I think people, first of all, are becoming more aware of employment rights. They're thinking about those issues more, which can only be a good thing. But certainly when it comes to the, the heart of the issue, the issue of, of pay, it really is business as usual for most employees. Uh, certainly those are on salary. They get paid a certain amount a year. And the year is still a year, regardless of the fact that it may have an extra day this year. So it's not going to have an impact on pay. One way to look at that, of course, is you're working a day more than you usually would and you don't get paid for it. So that's certainly uh, a way to look at it. On the other hand, of course, for hourly employees, they'll get, those get paid by the hour. 
it is certainly, again, business as usual, meaning if you work that extra day, you get paid for those hours. So in the context of those types of situations, individuals getting paid by the hour will get paid more in a leap year than those get that get paid by the salary. So salaried workers are not entitled to a leap year bonus, per se. No, there's no leap year uh, bonus. Uh, and the, the one thing to remember about a salary, generally speaking, is that that salary that you get, whatever you get, let's say, in a week, an employer doesn't have to pay extra unless they go beyond 44 hours in a week. So there's always this flexibility that's built in with the salary. For example, overtime kicks in after 44 hours. So some days you may work less or some weeks you may work more and that salary is still good. But here's an interesting caveat. If now, because you're working an extra day, the net effect of that is that in this pay period, you make less than minimum wage. That may happen hmm. with those individuals with lower salaries. Uh, minimum wage, of course, being sixteen fifty-five an hour for most people. If the effect is because you work that extra day, now your salary is less than that, then your employer has to top you up. You have to make at least minimum wage. So again, those people with lower salaries may want to actually calculate in the current pay period, will they be making less? And if they do, there is recourse. So is that an automatic pay by the employer or does the employee have to say, hey, wait a minute, like we should look at this? Uh, I, well, there's the should and there's the reality. It <laughs> should be something that an employer does. I expect that most employers probably won't think about that. Uh, so definitely something that I would put on the employee's lap to be mindful of and to do that calculation. Again, if you're, you know, if you're making a salary of $100,000 a year, you're going to be over minimum wage. You're not even close. Yeah. But certainly, if you're a lower salary, I think it's worth getting out those calculators and, and doing that math. Absolutely. Lior Samfiro is our guest. Lior is an employment lawyer. Samfiro Tamarkin, LLP, one of the top guys on the Employment Law Show, Saturdays and Sundays at noon, right here on 900 CHML. What about leap years or leap year days when it comes to unionized workers? Is there a special segment in their CBA that deals with February 29th? So, yes. Uh, it, well, in some situations, uh, I have seen collective agreements specifically address that and ensure that there's that extra pay for that extra day. Uh, it's not something that's common, but it, it exists, uh, especially with larger collective agreements that uh, cover many employers. Uh, there is that recognition. But here's the interesting thing. As I started off this conversation by saying that employees are becoming more aware of this issue, and this is something that's now uh, you know, become a, a thing that employees are concerned about. So I can expect to see this being addressed more frequently in collective agreements and future negotiations, a, a section added to deal with this exact situation. Uh, I don't expect that individuals that negotiate their own employment agreements with employers are going to be able to negotiate that necessarily if they accept the job. But in the collective agreement, the unionized context, uh, it it ha has happened. I can see it becoming a, a regular thing moving forward. Really interesting topic, that is for sure. Lior, thanks for sharing your insight with us this morning. Always a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Have you ever driven through or stopped in a town that has a an odd or a funny name? And I mean like really odd or funny. I have a list of Canadian and American communities that have unique names, and I'll also explain the origins behind some of these names. One of the most famous ones, though, 
is on the East Coast, and it caught the attention of late-night host Jimmy Kimmel a few years back. Oh, it is a beautiful summer night in Dildo, Newfoundland. Thank you, my brothers and sisters in Dildo. You've been very kind. I'm proud to be your mayor, and I will come to visit my fellow Dildodians very soon, all right? Dildo, Newfoundland, and Labrador. Yeah, some locals believe the name comes from a French word for the island, Ildo, or a Spanish word for the bottom of a boat. The term has also been known to refer to a pin placed in a rowboat that attaches to the oar. Snafu Yukon, named after the U.S. military acronym Situation Normal All Fouled Up while the Alaska Highway was being built. Legal Alberta, founded in 1914. Emil Legal was the Bishop of St. Albert, Alberta, renowned for its public murals, and it was named the French mural capital of the world back in 2011. How about Dead Man's Flats, Alberta? Now, some believe this name comes from a murder at a dairy farm in 1904. Others say it comes from a Nakota man who, while out hunting beaver, pretended to be dead to avoid getting caught. Dead Man's Flats, Alberta. Here's another unique or odd name. Happy Land, Saskatchewan. This tiny community in southwestern Saskatchewan near the Alberta border was named by an early resident who was, I guess, just happy to be there. Climax, Saskatchewan. Population 195. Was settled by Christ Fugelstad, an immigrant from Climax, Minnesota, which owned its name to a chewing tobacco company. Now, some would say Paincourt, Ontario, although it's pronounced Pancor, Ontario. It was established in 1854 in Chatham-Kent, and the name translates to shortbread. Crotch Lake, Ontario. Who's been to Crotch Lake, Ontario? This name comes from the two narrows that meet, making it look like the crotch of a stick. The name certainly shouldn't deter you from visiting it. Crotch Lake is home to 77 campsites and is part of a beautiful canoe route through the Mississippi River. Yeah, it goes all the way down there. I've actually driven through this place, St. Louis du Haha in Quebec. It's the only town in the world with two exclamation points in its name. Peekaboo Corner, New Brunswick. This community owes its name to a poorly placed house that stood on the corner, blocking the vision of passing drivers. And there's also Sober Island, Nova Scotia. Some think it was named by British soldiers in the 1700s, uh, 1700s who landed there with no booze on their ship. Uh-oh. I guess they drank it all on the way. <laughs> Odd names of towns in the U.S. There's a lot of them as well. Mount Disappointment, California. So the story goes, when a team of surveyors in 1894 saw the 5,963-foot mountain, they declared it the highest in the San Gabriel Range. But when they measured it, they actually found that the nearby San Gabriel Peak was slightly higher, so they named this one Mount Disappointment. Womp womp. Whiskey Dick Mountain, Washington. 3,873-foot-tall mountain in central Washington. The name stems from the surrounding Whiskey Dick Wildlife Area. Bug Tussle, Kentucky. That sounds like a nice place. A tiny town in southern Kentucky that is said to be infested with doodlebugs. I'm not sure if this is a sister city. Roachtown, Illinois. This town doesn't exist anymore, but it did in the late 1800s. Roachtown Road cuts through the area, and it still exists to this day. Another unique town name in the U.S., Big Cockroach Mound, Florida. This hill is on an island in the waters of Cockroach Bay next to Cockroach Channel. Do you think they have a cockroach problem? 
center of the world, Ohio, and you thought it was Toronto. This tiny middle-of-the-nowhere town in Ohio was founded and named by an eccentric investor named Randall Wilmot, who planned to turn it into a bustling center of trade and commerce. When a railroad was built in nearby Warren, Ohio, the center of the world died a slow death. Greasy Oklahoma, established in the Oklahoma land rush, Greasy served as a checkpoint on the Trail of Tears. It was a base for the Confederate Army during the Civil War. A couple more for you. Poverty, Kentucky. A physician named William Short lived in this hated uh, li- lived in this community and hated obnoxious neighbors. So somehow he got the chance to name this newly incorporated town, and he chose poverty. So his hoity-toity neighbors would always live in poverty. Last one for you. I'm Alone, Wisconsin, founded by Snowball Anderson in the early 1900s. He operated a gas station there, and as the story goes. A salesman bought some gas one day and asked Anderson for the town's name so he can write it on the receipt. We can only guess that Anderson said, I'm alone. And that's what the salesman wrote on the receipt. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.